1: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com/host.
2: On DAB digital radio, online and on 1089 and 1053 AM. This is Motty Meets. The canny king of charismatic football commentary is joined by a football legend from the good old days. Motty Meets on Talk Sports. I'm John Motson and on this edition of Motty Meets, I'm joined by the former Charlton Athletic and West Ham United manager, Alan Kirbishley.
3: We had to win that final. I thought Sunderland could afford to lose it. I couldn't afford to lose it. The club couldn't afford to lose it. Yeah, I thought that, you know, hold on, if this works out, I could could be the England manager. In the end, it became untenable that I wasn't running the football club. I wasn't running my side of it.
2: And one of the many reasons we've invited you along as a guest on Motty Meets, Alan, is because your goal, your first goal, in fact, in professional football, came along in a game I was commentating on, West Ham versus Newcastle in 1975. We'll discuss that moment shortly, but first let's look at the early years of your life and you really were an East End boy, weren't you? <laughs>
3: Absolutely. I was I was uh, born in Town lived uh, a mile away from West Ham station and... About 150 yards from where we was living, Clive Charles and Johnny Charles, two West Ham uh, players at the time, lived, and uh, there was a real West Ham connection down my road. Chrissy Hooton lived, and uh, one or two others. The, the Oldsworth brothers come from the same same area, so. Absolutely, an East London boy.
2: In fact, you were a boyhood West Ham fan, not surprisingly. You won England caps at schoolboy and youth level, but you weren't the only famous face in your family because your older brother Bill Kirbishley is well known for his work as manager of The Who and as a film producer. And I want to take you back to a concert by The Who in May 1974 when 88,000 people... Crammed into the Valley Bigger than any football crowd they've had since the war um, In fact the largest crowd ever at the stadium And you were there,
3: Alan As a badge seller <laughs> Don't tell the tax man No uh, My brother organised the concert He just took the Who on And uh, they was having this uh, concert at the Valley It was the first time I've ever been to the Valley And uh, I, was, I was 15 Nearly 16 Just about to join West Ham As an apprentice and uh, so he installed a badge-making machine in my mum's house, and me and my younger brother Paul, we made these badges, tons of them. And then on the Saturday morning, arrived at the Valley to see all these fans camping out overnight, all around the all around the ground. And the Valley wasn't what it is now, John. You know, it was a bit dilapidated as we know. And and that big bank, apparently, it was 46,000 people on that bank for the concert and obviously the stage went out from the main stand to to the halfway line, kickoff spot. And there was 88,000, because I think Ken Livingston, who was the uh, mayor of London at the time, actually flew an helicopter over, and they could tell by by the square inch of the photograph how many people was actually in there. And I think Garvey Goldsmith, who was was the promoter, got fined, because there was too many people in there. But we did sell the badges, and, uh, you know, who badges, who badges, 10 pence. We sold out. (laughs)
2: Having <laughs> touched the pop music scene there, you then got into your apprenticeship at West Ham. I remember, I think your debut, March 1975 at Upton Park against Chelsea.
3: Yeah, it was against Chelsea and uh, I didn't realise I was playing. I, I, went, I, I was pulled out of the South East Counties team on the Friday, but I still went and watched the South East Counties at Chadwick, the team play. And Ronnie Boyce was the manager at the time and just looked at me and said, what on earth are you doing here? Get yourself over to Upton Park. You know, I said, well, I'm going to go over there in a minute. Get over there now. And I didn't even know I was playing, John. Um, but obviously, when I got there, I realised I was in the team. And um, Tommy Langley was a good friend of mine. He was playing for Chelsea. And I think Phillips, the goalkeeper, got injured. And Tommy had to gain goal. That was before, you know, before there was, there was only one sub. And uh, we ended up losing 1-0. Mickey Joy scored, I think. And that was my, that was my debut. But... Obviously, the game that I remember most was uh, when the season started the next year. Uh, That was the the game that I really remember.
2: Well, yes, it would be. But before we talk about that, you'd made your debut in the 74-75 season. But it was also a year when West Ham got to the cup final. I know you weren't quite ready then to be part of the squad. But uh, were you there on the day they beat
3: Fulham? I was there on the day. I was included in the squads to the build-up because John was resting people. Uh, John Lyle was resting people leading up to the final. And our last league game actually was at Ipswich, uh, who we knocked out in the semi-final, and Bobby Robson t- took great pleasure in beating us five-something. But obviously it was at the final, and uh, no, I went to watch it like every like a, like a fan. And, uh, you know, the Bobby Moore connection, etc. And uh, and after that, after the final, I immediately went off with uh, the England youth team to play in the Mini World Cup, uh, which we actually won great memories you know and the team Ray Wilkins Glenn Odell Brian Robson Peter Barnes we had some great players in that side who all came through and played for their teams and England won a trophy we actually won it and uh, I think uh, the pictures resurfaced recently of us getting off the plane with with the trophy because the England under 16 17s and 18s have done ever so well recently yes right and we was the last team to win anything I think that was what 1975
2: (laughs) it was And, and later that year October and I can identify with this. You scored your first goal for West Ham in a two-one win against Newcastle. Now, I was commentating. I remember this was very early in the game. You scored. Mm. Seventeen years old.
3: Absolutely, yeah. It's, uh, and uh, Clyde, the ball went up to Clyde Best, who brought it down and laid it off, and I sort of, I sort of controlled it on my knee, and and I followed it, and it flew in the bottom corner, and I couldn't believe it. I just, you know, jumped up and down and and, and whatever, and uh, I made the goal for Alan Taylor, the winner banged the ball over the top, Mallon Taylor run onto it. And it was funny because I, I went to the game on the bus. I walked from a house in uh, Gainsborough Road, Canning Town, walked out to Barking Road, got the bus to the game. And after the game, um, I think I went on the pitch and done an interview with you, you know, for Match, match of the a. Day. And um, John said to Frank Lampard Senior, will you take him home? Uh, you know, because he knew I'd come on the bus. <laughs> and uh, Frank said, yeah, Frank said to me, I'll see you in the players lounge. Come in the players' lounge and I'll take you home. I went in the players' lounge and Bobby Moore was in there and he'd been watching the game. So Bobby Moore and Frank took me home, took me home to a mum and dad's house. And, uh, you know, that was, that was the thing. And, and Frank said to me, what are you going to do? What are you going to do tonight? I said, I'm going to stay in and watch Bachelor Day, <laughs> you know, as you did. Mm. And, uh, you know, I got out of the car and they went off. Well, uh, you've always kept the best company, Alan. (laughs) Um, The following season,
2: uh, by now you obviously established yourself in the first-team squad, you actually took part in the Cup Winners' Cup, the European competition, didn't you, in which West Ham did very well. In fact, uh, I think you you probably came on as a substitute in the second
3: leg against Den Haag. I played in the first leg away in Den Haag, and we got beat 4-2. It was really up against us. Madam. and then I was subbed, um, I was in the squad throughout the, the tournament really, and uh, we beat Den Haag to get into the semi-final, and then the semi-final, which many people think is the greatest game ever at Abton Park against Eintracht Frankfurt, got through to, that, to, that, uh, to the final, and I was sub for the final, uh, which um, was in Heysel. And, uh, you know, we started off so well and Frank got injured and and the team got changed around a bit. And in the end, Van der Helst uh, finished us off and uh, we got beat. But it was a great experience. And as I say, for a 17 year old to to be involved in in that quality of tournament. And uh, yeah, loser's medal in the in the final.
2: Well, by then, of course, in the seasons that followed, you'd establish yourself as a first-team player. However, just to mention the 1977-78 season, West Ham got relegated. Bonds with throw. And just, at the moment, West Ham just cannot get going. And in fact, most of the afternoon, they haven't really been able to put a convincing bit of style onto their play. But now, maybe can. That's a lovely ball played for Holland. Played inside again, Cross turning and failing to get it properly. But that's the best West Ham, uh, certainly the most incisive West
0: Ham move we've had. The ball played through there delightfully for Matt Holland. He hit it in low and Cross didn't quite get hold of it. And there goes the final whistle that could signal the end of a first division life. For the time being at any rate for West Ham United a defeat on a day they badly needed a
2: victory and now they can only wait to see what results of other teams in relegation trouble around them Was that a big blow for, well it must have been at the time for the club
3: Yeah, absolutely and uh, things were changing at the the football club and things were changing in football at the time as well and uh, I wasn't getting as much football as I thought I should be getting you know I was young and 18, 19 and uh, as I said, I was seeing the Ray Wilkins and the Brian Robsons and the Glen O'Ralls all playing for their side, and you know I wasn't, I wasn't in the side at the time, and and freedom of contract came in, and that was a a, a real revolution at the time, and uh, which meant if your contract had run out, you could go, you could be transferred, and, and and the fee would be set by a tribunal. I think back, and I've spoke to a couple of players, Alan Dempsey and, and and Alvin Martin, one or two others, Paul Brush, at the time, and I was a bit headstrong, and. You know, I took the opportunity to leave, and I wished I hadn't have. Although I went to Birmingham and Aston Villa, and I played my best football at Birmingham, I think if I'd just stuck it out, John, I think I'd have been able to say, well, I could have done ten years at West Ham, like a lot of the other players. But I was a bit headstrong, and at the time with John, John Lyle, and I realised this when I went into management. If John said to me two and two was four, I'd have said it was five. At the time. Really? If he said that was black, I'd have said it was white. You know, it was that sort of relationship. And then six months after I left, I went to Birmingham. And six months after I left, I bumped into John. And uh, we we were talking and and had a chat. You know, I'd settled down and I was playing regular. Um, And when I went into management, I always remembered that. And I had a couple of instances myself with young players uh, where if I said to them two and two was, was four then I'd have said five and I was trying to explain look I've been there you know I've done, I've done that I've been a rebel <laughs> I've done that and uh, you know just calm down and let, it, let, let things take their take their time but that's what happened to me at West Ham and I was a bit headstrong and you know although as I said earlier I played my best football at Birmingham and, and Villa uh, perhaps I should just give it a little bit more time
2: Under Jim Smith at Birmingham
3: Under Jim Smith and what happened Jim Smith Sold Trevor Francis to, to Nottingham Forest for 999999 yes. yeah. And uh, he revamped the side and he bought Archie Gemmill, Colin Todd, Frank Worthington, Willie Johnston. I mean, the faces that were coming in, and, and, and I went there as a 20 as a year old and it was fantastic. And uh, we had a really good side mm-hmm. and I really enjoyed the couple. Well, I was there for three. Nearly four years. Well,
2: in your first season, you played in every league game, and and Birmingham got promoted back to Division One.
3: Yeah, and uh, and once we got back into the top flight, we established ourselves. was a decent side, as I said, and uh, we could hold our own. and And then things changed at the club, and was having a bit of a bad time. And it wasn't that bad, you know. We weren't struggling, but a manager called Ron Saunders became available at Aston Villa, and it was a big thing, you know. Living in Birmingham. You had to be there to to appreciate what had happened, and uh, Ron Saunders had just won the league cup, just won the league, and they uh, were in the European Cup, and he walked out and was available, and Birmingham went and took took Ron and, and sacked Jimmy, and it was a bit harsh, and uh, Jimmy went to Oxford and, and done ever so well and resurrected yeah. his career. And Ron came to Birmingham. This is Motty Meets on Talk Sport with Alan
2: Kirbyshley. It's not going to be long, is it, before you come to Charlton Athletic when you talk to Alan Kirbyshley? And you stayed at Aston Villa until December nineteen eighty four. Uh, manager had changed again, and then you went to Charlton when they were in the old Division Two.
3: Yeah, I mean it was a big decision. I had to make, John. That the last game I played for Villa was against Liverpool. Uh, we drew 0-0 40, zero zero forty thousand and. Uh, Charlton came in for me, and I just got married, and there was a big north si- north south divide in 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 everything, especially house prices, and I'd moved up to Birmingham, Stock and Barrel, and quickly realised that if I didn't get back to London, I may never have got back to London because the house prices, the difference was incredible at the time, and you know early eighties, and I made the decision, and it was a financial decision more than, than anything else, but I left the I left the top flight team if you like, left the Premier League to join a championship side that was in the bottom three. And it was a big gamble and and in my mind I was thinking that perhaps I'd go to Charlton, do well, and then I'll get another move. And I went to Charlton, we stayed up the game before the end of the season. And then Lenny Lawrence invested quite heavily in the side and, um, you know, brought five or six players in, and, and then we went and won promotion.
2: You did, under Lenny Lawrence, but but I want to ask you something that happened in the meantime, because only a year after you joined Charlton, they moved out of the valley and went to Selhurst Park. Now, a lot of people listening to this won't remember why that was. Perhaps you could clarify it somewhat.
3: Yeah, well, the people, the people that owned the club at the time, I think it was the Glickstein. The Glickstein brothers. Yeah, well, owned the ground. The John Fry and, and John Sunley bought the club, and they didn't own the club, you know, obviously didn't own the Valley and they were trying to buy it. They, they wouldn't sell it. And, you know, they got fed up with doing the repairs, et cetera. So they said, look, we're going to move. We're going to move to Crystal Palace and tried to call their bluff. And it didn't work because they didn't sell the club to them, uh, the, the freehold. And, and we moved to Crystal Palace, which was, when you think about it, quite incredible. It, you know, it's a big rival. It wasn't as if it was around the corner. And, we suddenly went to Crystal Palace. The players just got on with it, but we were playing in front of 3,000 people, 4,000 people at Palace. But it happened, and we just had to get on with it, John. And incredibly, incredibly, we was in the top flight, in the Premier League, if you like, and, and
2: we stayed there. Yes, I was going to say you won promotion, as, as we said. Now, for the time being, you're going to leave Charlton for this conversation because in August 1987, you joined Brighton.
3: Well, what happened was that um, my first major injury was the knee which we spoke about when I was at Burma. And then when I was at Charlton, uh, I injured me Achilles. And, um, you know, kept me out for four or five months. And Lenny went and bought Colin Walsh in and Steve McKenzie and a couple of, you know, strengthened the squad. He couldn't wait for me. I was going to be out for two or three months. And when I came back, I couldn't get back inside. And I'm suddenly sitting there thinking, I've just left Aston Villa. I've helped the team stay up. I've helped the team get promotion. And now I can't get back in the side. And I needed to play and uh, I was desperate to go and play and get out on loan somewhere. But then when Brighton came in, I decided to move there and uh, to play, play for Brighton. I'd done three years at Brighton, and, and Lenny Lawrence, who sold me, then brought me back as player coach uh, for the reserves. And then Lenny fell out with Mike Flanagan after a couple of matches, and suddenly I got promoted from the reserve team coach to first team coach. And that's how my Charlton managerial career started, in 1991, Lenny Lawrence left Charlton to become Middlesbrough
2: manager, and you and Steve Grit took over first of all as joint managers.
3: Funny enough, I think there was a there was a joint manager at Spurs at the time. I think it was Ray Clements and um, Doug Livermore. Doug Livermore, I think. Yeah, it was some, something that perhaps had been fought up, and and um, Lenny was actually negotiating a transfer of a Middlesbrough player at the time, and um, as he was doing a transfer, trying to, uh, Alan Kernigan it was. As he was doing a transfer and we was on on holiday, they offered him the job, to be Middlesbrough manager. So he, he decided to go to Middlesbrough, and um, you know, and said, said said to me and Stevie, uh, you know, it's not for you, you know, to come with come with me. I've recommended that one of you two or both of you take over. And the club was in financial trouble, and we had no ground. We were supposed to have been going to Upton Park uh, for uh, for six or seven games and, and then we was going to get back to the valley and, uh, and whatever. And it was a real mess. But the club decided to give me and Stevie the job. We was both contracted as players. I was first team coach and, and Stevie was a reserve team coach, but they gave us the job. And when I look back, John, at um, everything that's happened to Charlton, I think that the job me and Steve done actually saved the club because we went to Upton Park. People thought that perhaps we was going to foul. And we kept the thing going. We actually finished seventh that year, just yeah. outside the playoffs. And the second season we was in we were second in the league when we sold Robert Lee to Newcastle who were top Kevin Keegan, and we sold a young boy called Anthony Barnes to Chelsea and that with the with the the owners at the time, all the money that was collected got us back to the valley and I think if we hadn't have been successful in that eighteen months, me and Steve. Uh, and the club would have perhaps struggled, then we wouldn't have got the investment that took us back to the valley.
2: In the summer of 1995, the Charlton chairman then, Richard Murray, made you the sole manager.
3: Yeah, and uh, I mean, can you imagine it? It was a really difficult situation because Steve had been a Charlton boy throughout and um, a fan's favourite. And, uh, you know, I was the outsider, if you like. And uh, but But Richard Murray... Whenever he wanted to talk, this is quite interesting, young. Whenever he wanted to talk to us about anything, you know, perspective signings or the team or whatever, firstly, me and Steve had to make sure we got our stories right before we spoke to him, because he may have got Steve or he may have got me, and we didn't want to contradict ourselves. So in the morning, we sit there and go, well, well, this is the side for the Saturday. So if the chairman phones, we knew what, you know, we didn't want him to think, Well, Kerbs is picking one team and Stevie Grit's yeah. picking the other. And we was called Tweedledee and Tweedledum, in, you know, by the press. And we decided that I would do two press conferences and then Steve would do two and then I would do two. So we'd done home and away, home and away. So we didn't uh, do all the home games where you get more results. And, you know, we fought really long and hard about it. But but Richard Murray decided that he'd had enough of that. And he, he offered me the job. And he said to me, if you don't take it, um, if you decide you don't want it, I'm moving elsewhere. Jimmy Smith at the time was the chairman of the league managers. Obviously, my old manager. So I phoned Jimmy up and I said, "Look, I've got a bit of a quandary. here. I've got a bit of a problem. This is what's going on." And Jimmy's advice was, "Look, if the if the chairman wants you to be the manager, you've got to take it." Um, is he going to look after Steve in terms of contracts and whatever? I said, "Yeah, they're going." They're gonna, he said, "Well, that's that's as much as you can do." And you'll just have to take the flack if it comes along. You know, whatever. And obviously it was a big chance for me. Um, so the first thing I did when I agreed was to phone Steve and meet him at the valley and explain it and, and go through it with him. Uh, obviously he was massively disappointed and he took it, took it very well. But it wasn't as if there was a massive falling out and backstabbing or anything else like that. I think uh, it was what happened. And he knew, Steve, that I couldn't turn it down and I knew if it was going the other way he wouldn't have been able to turn it down No, absolutely The following season your first in fact Charlton
2: finished sixth reached the playoffs and lost to Crystal Palace in the semi-finals but two seasons later not only did you get there you won promotion to the Premier League and this brings us probably to one of the most memorable games in your career that you would have been involved with. Um, you, you'd beaten uh, Ipswich, I think it was, in the semi-finals and that took you to Wembley to play Sunderland. And this will always be remembered, Alan, for those listeners who aren't Charlton fans or who don't remember <laughs> this, it was one of the most exciting playoff finals ever, yeah. if not the most.
3: I don't think it's ever going to be matched on, no, Now, yeah. No, well, you tell the story from where you were as manager of Charlton. When we got to Wembley, I was just staggered by the noise and the fact that 80,000 people was in red and white. Because Sunderland were red and white, we were red and white. And when you actually walked out in the stadium and, and saw it and the noise, it was, it was an incredible situation. But we've gone out there and whenever you see a picture, I, saw it, I went to Charlton versus Sunderland this weekend and they had a picture in the boardroom of the two teams walking out. And Peter Reed's walking out, and uh, and I knew Peter from the under-21s. We've known each other forever, same age, etc. He's walking out, and I'm looking as miserable as sin, and so is the team. And the reason by that is because I said to the players, listen, I've seen loads of teams walk out at Wembley. I'm all concerned about where their family is sitting and this and that, and they're soaking up in the atmosphere, and they're waving to people. I want none of that. I want you all to be focused and make sure you're ready for the start. Forget what's going on. And when you see that picture, there's about there's about twelve the miserablest people in the world walking on the pitch at Wembley, and funny enough, there is a couple. When you see the video, there's a couple of Sunderland Played, players waving yeah. to to whatever. But I just thought that that game going into it, I think both us and Sunderland, sixteen out of the previous seventeen seasons, would have gone straight up with a points total. We had. I see. Yeah. Uh, but as, you know, Forest went up, I can't remember, Middlesbrough, I think. You were fourth, weren't you? We were fourth, Sunderland yeah. were third. And, um, but I just felt that we had to win that final. I thought Sunderland could afford to lose it. I couldn't afford to lose it. The club couldn't afford to lose it because I knew if we lost, I'd lose four or five players. I knew that straight away and, and, and the chairman did. Uh, so it was a must win for us that game. Well, before
2: we get as far as the penalties, which was the biggest drama, the game ended
3: 4-4. Well, uh, the great thing was was the two benches because, as I say, Reedy was on the other side and Brian Pop Robson was in his partner Sunderland uh coaching staff and, you know, was looking over at each other as if to say, like, what on earth's going on here? But Clive got his hat-trick, which is probably the best hat-trick you're ever going to see. It's Clive Mendonca. Clive Mendonca. Right. Hat-trick, which is fantastic. You know, for anyone out there who's not seen it, the way he takes all the goals. He's a brilliant finisher. Steve Jones inside the penalty area. Good cross. Mendonca! It's extraordinary! Absolutely extraordinary! A hat-trick for Clive Mendonca!
2: Jones got to the byline. Mendonca needed two telling touches.
3: And the game's ended 4-4. And the penalties... We'd been practicing like everyone has, you know, and we took it serious practice, you know, made them walk up to to the penalty spot and et cetera. But you, when when you as the manager, you have to go to the referee and you have to give the ref the five names. And Eddie Walston was the ref, so I've gave him my five, and Reedy's gave me his five, and then we're not allowed no. to stand in there. We had to to move move out and go to the bench. Well, when it got to five all. I didn't have a clue who else was going to take our penalties. And uh, when it got, to, I think it got to 6-0, I'm thinking, well, who's the next one? Who's going to take it? So could you communicate
2: from where no. you were? I mean, they were having to make their own decisions yeah. then and,
3: on the and pitch. I, and w- when it got to 6-0, to I think Eddie Walsenholm shouted out to, to my boys, come on, who's taking the next one? And I think it was Richard Rufus, Eddie Yowds, Sean Newton and Stevie Jones. And they was all looking the other way. Not, this is what I've been told uh, later and then suddenly Richard Rufus pushed Sean Newton out of the centre circle and when you see it again Sean Newton jogs all the way to the penalty spot because I think he's absolutely shaking <laughs> and I've never seen Sean take a penalty before ever anyway he takes his penalty and he scores
2: Robinson for Charlton 6-5
3: And still, no mistake. Brilliant goal in the playoff semi
2: final against Ipswich. Very, very cool. Well, I, I, actually, I think I'm right in saying that the Sunderland missed penalty it
3: was Michael Gray. What happened as Michael Gray's going up to take the penalty? I said to Keith Peacock next to me, I said, Keith, blimey. What's going on? He said, don't watch this one because he's a lefty. And I went, oh, right. He said, go on, don't watch it and the cameras actually got me with my my hands over my head over my face and I didn't watch it Michael Gray born in Sunderland
2: Illich has saved it and Charlton are promoted and Sasa Illich as he has been for three months is the hero
3: whoever would have thought it and when I didn't hear the roar because we was, was taking the penalties at the Sunderland and I knew it had been saved and people asked me why I'd done it and it's because Keith said he's a lefty and he was the only yeah. lefty and and the thing about it once we won it and everyone's celebrating Reedy was unbelievable he came in the dressing room praised all the players went round it must have been devastating and obviously the next season they came, they came up which I I knew they were strong enough to do that Uh, And as I'm going back to what I was saying, I don't think we would have because I had four or five players that I knew Premier League sides would come and take.
2: But the following season, you were relegated back.
3: We got relegated last game of the season. We was at home to Sheffield Wednesday, I think it was. You
2: weren't away long, were you? Because in in the 1999-2000 season, you won promotion again. At this time, you won the Division One title.
3: Yeah, well, what happened was when we first went up, John, we made a strategic decision that a third of the money... The Premier League money. Once we beat Sunderland, a third of the Premier League money would go into the stadium to try and improve it. A third of the money will go on the team, and a third of the money will stay in the club for for a rainy day. And obviously, we went we went back down last game of the season. But in that summer, it gave me the opportunity to to strengthen. We sold Danny Mills to to Leeds for four million pound, but it gave me the opportunity that I didn't once again, lose my better players, Mark cello and one or two others. And I managed to keep the squad together and bring some other players in. And it gave us the opportunity to bounce straight back, which is what we did. And, you know, it made us that much stronger because of it. And, uh, the second season back in the Premier League, I wasn't so loyal to the group that got me there. Sometimes you can, as a newly promoted side, but as a manager, be a bit too loyal. And, I decided that I was going to
1: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
2: This is Motty Meats on Talk Sports with Alan Kirby. Now, you went on then and had several successful seasons uh, in the Premier League. Let's be honest. I mean, I've got the league positions here. I mean, 12th, 7th. 11th and 13th mm. now I want to ask you something about the, the season you finished seventh which was 2003-4 because your assistant was Mervyn Day yeah and I knew Mervyn quite well and I used to come down and see the two of you didn't I in the yeah. office and and I always remember on the last day of that season when the league positions were put up you know in, after the game you'd finished seventh and I said Mervyn this is fantastic isn't it I mean what an achievement for you and Alan and do you know what he said to me? He said, our next problem, John, is expectation.
3: Yeah. <laughs> do you yeah. understand that? Absolutely, <laughs> because that season was the strongest side probably I had. We beat Chelsea Boxing Day 4-2 at the Valley and we were fourth. And Ranieri was the manager at Chelsea. And the next day he made a bid for Scott Parker. But they made a divisory offer, Chelsea. And it was wrong. We It wasn't a question that we were going to keep hold of him. We just felt it was right that we got the right fee. And it dragged on for, for two weeks. And I remember... Paolo Di Canio was at the t- in the team at the time, and he came to see me. Matt Holland, who was the captain, came and see me. Said, "Look, you got you got to let Scott go." I said, "I know I've got to let Scott go, but I've got to get the right money." And what happened was, it went on for two or three weeks, and relationships soured with with Scott and whatever. But we got our fee, which was twelve million. Uh, we got Carlton Cohen Carl on loan, which was a bonus for us. And Scott went. Scott went to Chelsea. But I firmly believe. If we'd have kept that squad together, if we'd have kept him, we'd have finished in the top four or five. I really felt that we were strong enough. I had top players, DeCanio, Klaus Hintz, and and we was a really good side and, and and it derailed us a little bit, but we finished seventh, which you was did. the highest yeah. we've ever finished. But my problem was I couldn't spend any of the money. Everybody else knew I had twelve million to spend. And and just you know, and I got held to ransom, so I couldn't spend any of it. So we you know, we kept that money. Finished seventh and yeah, you're right. That's when the expectation level changed at the club. And, and we we brought in Danny Murphy after that and, and one or two others where we was trying to upgrade and, you know, attracting someone like Danny Murphy from Liverpool to come to Charlton. You know, and we had Di Canio the year before. Uh, you know, we was changing. You know, that's what people wanted. And, uh, yeah, we was having to deal with the expectation level.
2: Well, I suppose what you're saying is you were one player away maybe it would have been Scott Parker if he'd stayed, from getting a Champions League place, yeah, which in Charlton's
3: it. terms would have been unbelievable. Well, at the time, John, we was regularly beating the top four. You know, we was, we was beating Liverpool at Anfield. We, we were beating Chelsea, done a double over Chelsea. The only team we couldn't get the better of was Manu. We beat Arsenal 4-2 at Ivory, beating 1-0 at the Valley. You know, we was regularly beating the top sides. And no one had it easy against us, but that side possibly was the strongest that Charlton have had. And, uh, you know, the regular Charlton fans will probably agree. That, that, that team that finished seven was the strongest. I would agree because yeah. I know
2: one or two Charlton fans and they yeah. always talk very fondly of that season. Yeah. Now, just a word or two about your longevity here as a Charlton manager. You celebrated your 600th game in charge, uh, actually against one of your old clubs, Birmingham City, in September 2005. And actually, before you left, you were only one short of the club record held by the great <laughs> Jimmy Seed. Yeah, I know. I mean, you were a Charlton legend. I mean, what was it like being manager of a
3: club for such a long time? Well, Richard Bevan informed me, He was head of the uh, Chief Executive for the League Managers, informed me recently that I am the longest-serving ever first-time manager. Really? The longest first-time first time manager, if you know what I mean. You know, cause yeah, I know now, what you
2: mean, the, the first job, main job. First job,
3: job yeah. staying there for 16 years yeah because uh, you know managers now will might get 16 days or 16 <laughs> weeks um yeah. but because of the longevity no one else has managed to get anywhere near it. i think paul tisdale was on his way at exit yes, yes he got in n- the double n- figures n- now mk dons yeah uh, he yeah. got in the double figures and obviously fergie 20 odd years yeah. and, and wenger but that was this third or fourth club longest serving first time manager that's fantastic
2: and, of course, um, just to tell people again who won't remember, Jimmy Seed was the uh, legendary Charlton manager who'd taken them to great heights in the yeah. 1930s and, and was still manager after the war. So, so you'd, you'd established yourself in history there. And I just want to ask you about your reasons for leaving. Was it a big wrench when the time came when you left Charlton?
3: I'll tell you, I'll tell you what happened, John. Before the end of that season, the England job was up. Sven had left, and I was one of the people who got interviewed. I think it was me, Steve McLaren, Sam, Scolari, one or two others. But I was in, I got involved in that and um, had the meeting with the FA and in the end they gave the job to Steve McLaren. But I had one year left on my contract. And Richard May was the chairman and he sat me down and said, Look, I want you to sign a new three year contract and I could have quite easily signed it. I was I was running the club, Lock, Stock and Bow, not what not what the managers have got now. No, no, I was I was All decisions. Yeah. Main main mainly especially the, the football side. But I just felt I'd been there so long. If I'd have signed a new contract, it'd have been for the wrong reasons. I could have took the money and signed it. And as I say, if I'd have had a bad time, I knew I would, wouldn't have come under pressure because of how long i have been there and what we have done. But I said to him, look, I've done, done long enough. I'll do the other year. And then he said, well, that's a problem. He said, because if we're going to try and sign players in the summer, we want them to sign three or four year deals. They're going to ask about you. You've only got one year left. I said, well, I don't think that counts, you know, don't think that counts really for the player. He said, well, we, you know, it does. And he probably was right. He said, I don't think it's right. You know, that you're not going to be here for three or four years when we're trying to sign players and spending lots of money on them. And as we was having the conversations, because of the England thing, and was having the conversations, it, it, it just materialised over, over a week or so that perhaps it was best that I left. And the more I think about it, it was probably the right decision for for all sorts of reasons. And it culminated on the Friday before we was playing Blackburn at home. And it was done. You know, I was gonna you know, we agreed that I was gonna leave. Richard wanted to to announce it the next day against Blackburn. I hadn't even told my staff what was going on. Gone into the Blackburn game, I told the staff, told the players, um, you know, I was leaving at the end of the season. And the one reason, apart from anything else, was to give the new manager the opportunity to come in and get and get his feet under the table and have all that summer and pre-season to work with the players and, 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 and have a bit of a, a better a better chance of it. We then went to Old Trafford, my last game of the season, and uh, you know, last game, and uh, that was it. You know, I left. And, you know, suddenly... When, when a new season came around I wasn't doing anything Charlton first game was away at West Ham which was quite ironic um, but suddenly I, I wasn't working and you know the start of the season was was a bit bit strange for me but you know I'd left and now it was up to someone else to take over uh, and uh, Ian Dowie went in there and it's quite interesting I just said to, to said to you that you know I'd been at Charlton for 16 years I think they gave Ian 16 games
2: just want to go back for a minute, Alan, to the England interview. Full marks for getting it on the short list, if you see what I mean. But did you go into that interview thinking, "Yeah, I've got a, I've got a fighting chance for being the England boss here"?
3: Well, yeah. I mean, what it was, I, I met Brian Barwick, and it was just like a, a coffee and biscuits, just to have a chat. Um, but it got leaked, and it was suddenly in the Sunday papers. And uh, we were playing that that afternoon, a live game for Sky. It got leaked Sunday morning that we we had the meeting. But the chairman knew about it, you know, it wasn't, uh, you know, they asked permission. But when they had the round of first interviews, uh, I couldn't go. We had a game. We had an FA Cup replay. I couldn't go to it. Sam went to it and I think Steve and, and whatever. So really my my interview was at the FA. And um, I just got the feeling when I got in there, they'd already made their mind up, you know, and, and it was more of a courtesy thing that I was on the short list. And because I'd missed the first interview, perhaps... It went against me, but yeah, I thought that, you know, hold on, I could, if this works out, I could, uh, I could be the England manager. I'm not too sure if, if, if I was ready for it. So I had my interview, uh, and they decided to give it to Steve, because Steve had been working with Sven, and they wanted, I think they wanted that continuity, and that, and that was it. This is Motty Meats on Talk Sports with Alan Kervisley. So when you left Charlton, you
2: had that period as you said, out of work or not, not doing anything, and then in December two thousand and six, and this must have been a club. Even after what had you done at Charlton, this was still a club, another club close to your heart. You were appointed manager of West Ham.
3: Well, yeah, I mean, it was it was my dream, and and in, in all fairness, John and honesty, they came after me before that when uh, when Harry left, and uh, I didn't think I was ready. Funny enough, this was three or four years before. Um, I think they gave the job to Glenn Rodo in the end, I think. Um, but they came after me then, but I decided to stay at the stay at Charlton. And, and the main reason was I didn't think I was ready to take on what it meant taking on a, a club. Uh, no disrespect, but the, the club the size of West Ham. And, you know, West Ham is one of the top 20 clubs in the world in terms of uh, gait and uh, prestige and, and also... The expectation level and everything else that goes with it. So I didn't think I was ready when they first came after me, but I did think I was ready this time. Sacked Alan Pardew after getting beat 4-0, I think, at uh, Bolton. I think it was. And they came after me and, and uh, yeah, I agreed to go. And I uh, went in in December. I think we had 14 points from 17 games. It was in the bottom three. You looked certainties to go down. Well, I looked at the squad. No, I must admit, I looked <laughs> yeah. at the squad... And I thought, you know, obviously, season before that, you know, they'd come up. Paz had done a great job. They'd come up, finished ninth, got to the cup final against, against um, Liverpool, a great yeah. final with Steven Gerrard, Steven Gerrard yeah. But then it went wrong the next season, which often does yeah. in that second season. Yeah. And, you know, I looked in, I was fully confident that, you know, I could uh, turn it around. And I didn't know the owners, the Icelandic owners, obviously never met them before, but that was full of enthusiasm. And I thought, right, great. And uh, I said earlier that uh, I'd never beaten Man United. But my first game for West Ham manager was at home to Man United at Upton Park. And we won 1-0. And then we went and drew at Fulham. And I looked around at the squad and everything else. And I thought, well, what's the matter? What, what's wrong here? You know, we just they've just put two performances in. And uh, why are they in the bottom three? And then after that, we couldn't win a game for 10 games, John. We didn't lose them all, but we just couldn't. We should have won a couple, but... The results were going against me, going against us and for whatever reason. And I just could not find the right team. I signed a few players. Matty Upson came in, got injured in the first game. And this one I signed Louis Spur, Morty from Fulham. And he didn't quite work out to start with. And all the people I'd brought in never really settled. And the atmosphere was changing and the crowd. And, and, you know, I remember getting beat at home by, we got beat at home by Spurs. 4-3. Amazing game. We should oh, have won I it. There. I Lost 4-3. Three. Winning 3-2 three, with five minutes to go. Yeah. I come out of the ground thinking, well, we were 10 points behind the fourth spot. And I'm thinking, well, we're, we're in a bit of trouble here. Uh, and then it changed. Seven wins out of your last nine. Well, it changed. And, and the way it changed, and you often hear about luck and you often hear about confidence. And that's exactly what happened, John. It was incredible. We played Blackburn after that Tottenham game. We scored a goal that didn't go over the line or was dubious and we got an iffy penalty and we won 2-1, right? But we played well against Spurs the previous week and I kept roughly the same side at Blackburn but that gave me the confidence for that next week that I wasn't going to make any changes. I was going to keep the same side because they'd won whereas previously I was chopping and changing trying to find the right formula. Kept the same team. They performed okay in the next game. So, roughly, it was the same players that went on that run. I used 13 players, I think, in, in the last nine games. We won seven out of nine. We kept five clean sheets. And we had a couple of 1-0 wins in there. Big 1-0 wins. But the team that finished the season at Man United, nine of them was already there before I got there. So, it was just a thing about confidence. And that came back with a couple of results, and the confidence that came back into them players was quite incredible. And as I say, that that run of seven games, I know it's been equaled with Leicester a couple of years ago, and I think Wigan done it, but the teams we beat, the main United, the Arsenal, we won at the Emirates, I think, first team to win there. You know, it was some incredible results we got, we beat Bolton, who was in the top five. Uh, but as I say, to win seven out of your last nine was quite incredible.
2: Well, and, and the following season, you finished in the top half of the table. So yeah. clearly you, you were making progress. But I want to move on to the start of the 2008-9 season. You uh, started quite well again, but there was some speculation around about your position as manager. Mm. I know you're going to tell me later that it was, it was uh, intensified by um, the fact that you were unhappy that a mm. couple of players were sold. Could, could you just sort of clarify what went on there?
3: Well, yeah, you know, the second season we finished 10th. We, finished um, we had a lot of injuries that season. And, and, but the Icelandic owners, uh, Egert Magnuson was the chairman, we decided to invest in players that had European experience, were young enough to be at the club for, for three or four years and perhaps would get a bit of return if we, if we sold them. And they would attract other players. So I signed Scotty Parker from Newcastle. I signed Craig Bellamy from Liverpool, uh, Kieran Dyer from Newcastle, and a couple of other players that we thought would be 22, 23, they'd be around for some time. And if we'd done well, they'd attract other players to come to the football club. And And the Iceland owners felt that we should be a top six club with the crowds and, and everything else. And we finished 10th. And we started the next season. I know we only played three or four games, but we were fifth in the league. And the club... Uh, we had the financial crisis in 2008, and the Icelandic banks, uh, took, you know, took a big hit, and they lost control of the club. The creditors wanted their money, etc. I didn't know at the time when I signed for the club that they lent a lot of money to buy it. It wasn't, you know, cash or whatever, and uh, you know, the creditors wanted their money. So, so they asked me to sell players. They wanted, to, they wanted to get a certain amount of money, and I was happy to sell players. Um, we had a big squad because I bought players in. But the season has started. They wanted me, to get, wanted me to get to X amount. I got nearly there. And we played Blackburn at home. I think we beat them 4-1, I think. And the international break was coming up. And they was trying to sell a player. And I asked them not to because I had lots of injuries. I said, don't sell anymore. We're fifth in the league. We've got a really good next couple of fixtures coming up. Leave it to, the, to January transfer window and I will get your money and I'll get you a bit more. But they wanted to sell sell the player. And I I said to them, you better have a look at my contract because it basically said I had final say. And what was happening, because I was trying to sell players, agents were getting involved and the agents knew that perhaps I was trying to sell. Players were coming to see me, West Ham players were coming to see me saying that you're trying to sell me. And I'm saying, no, I'm not. You are because my agent knows that you're, been talking to other clubs about, you know, it, you know what the football's like, John. So every day I was having a, a battle with with, with my players, firstly, who thinking I'm trying to sell them. And then with the people in charge, trying to stop them, trying to sell them. And in the end, it became untenable that I wasn't running the football club. I wasn't running my side of it. And I had to make a big decision. And obviously, being a West Ham boy, a Canning Town boy, played for West Ham, waited for this job it was the job I wanted and suddenly I had to make a really big decision and some will say I made the wrong one I should have just stuck it out and got on with it but I made the decision and uh, decided that you know they, they made my uh, position untenable and I left the football club and you know ironically I think uh, Gianfranco Zola came in they made a couple of signings they sold George McCartney to Sunderland, and with that money made a couple of signings so You know, they were desperate for money, but they they spent quite a bit of it. And in that January transfer window, they sold Craig Bellamy at Man City. They sold Matty Everton to to Stoke. And they sold uh, another player. They're talking about 20 million in that January transfer window, which could have been done if Arsenal would have been there. I perhaps wouldn't have sold that amount. But, you know, they'd have got their money what they needed. And, you know, at, at the end of it, I've come out of there thinking, you know what, I had a really good side, but I just felt that I wasn't in charge anymore and the players knew that and it, it just didn't have the right mix and the right atmosphere at the club.
2: You actually won a case for constructive dismissal, didn't you?
3: Yeah, I won the case, but what happened, it took a year. The Premier League, funny enough, had the process in place for manager that got sacked, but they didn't actually actually have the process in place for a manager that resigned, right? And, and Richard Schooner, it took a bit of time to try and organise. And funny enough, there was a spate of managers resigning because soon after I resigned, Kevin Keegan resigned at Newcastle and I think Martin O'Neill resigned at Villa. So suddenly there was three managers that had not been sacked, which was quite straightforward. They'd resigned and the process and the way that it was going to be sorted out and the industrial tribunal or whatever, it wasn't really in place. And it took me a year to get it sorted out. And, and I think in that year, Perhaps a bit of damage had been done. Uh, I wasn't around and, 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 you know, why did he leave? Oh, he wouldn't sell a player and all that sort of thing. So, you know, after he got sorted, it was something like 14 months, which would never be the case now. No, no. Uh, and I think they'd done a lot of damage.
2: Well, uh, funnily enough, that brings me on to the big question at the, uh, towards the end of this. It's 10 years, Alan, since you left West Ham, All right, say nine years since the case was settled, and you've never gone back in.
3: Well, that's down to me, John. Well, you tell me about yeah, it. Yeah, no, it's down to me because uh, I was made offers. What happened, it took the fourteen team months uh, and then once it was sorted out, I was free to, to perhaps... Uh, and I thought with my record, uh, 10 years in the Premier League, that perhaps a Premier League club would be the next job I would get. I was getting offered clubs that was in danger of going down with, with 10 or 12 games left. Uh, you know, and I, and I thought, well, you know, if I go then it don't work. But... I remember Alex, Alex Ferguson saying to me, look, you've been out too long, you've got to get back in because things change, you've got to get back in. And the clubs I was getting offered after that were perhaps championship clubs. And I'm thinking, well, you know, perhaps, you know, I, I'm a bit better than that, you know, uh, with my Premier League experience. And then I thought I did have a job. I won't tell you who it was, but I thought I had it, a Premier League club, uh, only for it to be took away after three meetings they gave it to someone else. And then suddenly you're out for three or four years. Suddenly new owners, agents, different people involved at football clubs, and then suddenly you're, you're, you're out of the picture. And then I started doing uh, the media stuff, the TV and etc. And then suddenly I'm in a different, different lifestyle. I did go back to Fulham. Two stints there, didn't yeah.
2: you, as an advisor?
3: Yeah, which I think was a really good role for an experienced manager to perhaps go in and help an inexperienced manager if they don't think it's a threat but can offer a bit of advice, especially how to deal with a board, how to deal with this thing or or this disciplinary thing or or whatever. And and I thought that was a really good role uh, for me. Uh, But it didn't didn't quite work out. And, uh, you know, now, as you say, you're out so long now, you're out. You know, but mainly or most less down to me.
2: Do you still hanker for the involvement? Do you miss the buzz?
3: I do. When I go to a game like I did on Saturday, uh, when I watch Charlton play Sunderland. Uh, Sunland. Yeah I do, but I look at what what is going on now in football and the pathway of, of getting perhaps into the Premier League. For the for the British manager, you've got to win promotion. You're not gonna get elevated like perhaps the guy at Everton Silver. You're not gonna suddenly be put into a big club like that. You've got Sean Dyke one promotion. You know, you've got Eddie Howe won promotion and Chrissie Hute and having to stay there. Oh, Okay, Roy, Roy Hodgson's gone to, to Palace, but vastly experienced manager, he got elevated in. But all the other British managers now seem to have to win promotion from the Championship to get into that Premier League. And it's a lot more difficult uh, than perhaps it was. But yeah, if I look back, absolutely gutted what happened to me at West Ham um, and wished it hadn't have happened to me. But then perhaps I should have took a different route You know, jumped back in and got back in, got back on the merry-go-round, if you like, and, and perhaps I'll still be managing now. But my life has changed and I see a lot more in my family than I ever did. So it's a little bit different for me now. You're 61 now, Alan. I still
2: think you've got a lot of time. <laughs> you've got a wealth of experience, haven't well, you? We've just been through all those years of f- football management. I mean, I'm sure there's somebody somewhere who could make very good use of your yeah. experience. And, 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 and Well,
3: you know what the interesting thing is, I said to you before, I think I'm still in the top 10 of uh, Premier League managers in appearances because they don't. the managers don't get 10 years anymore in the Premier League. You know, they're in and if they're not successful, they're out. And that's the, that's the nature of the game at the moment. And I can't remember it was recently. Pochettino got into the under club because he'd won 100 games in the Premier League. Well, I'm in that. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, you've
2: done more than that. Alan, I hope you do get back in some capacity. It's been we'll great talking to you. Thank you very much. OK. The undisputed world heavyweight champion
3: of football commentators in another knockout interview. Motty meets on TalkSport.
2: This has been Monty Meats. Make sure you subscribe to never miss an episode. And I'll see you next time.
4: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer.